Hello and welcome to From the Trenches, the Business Examiner podcast. My name is John McDonald. This episode features a special guest from Fairly Strategies. Her company is a construction procurement and delivery specialist. And our conversation covers commentary on industry supply chain challenges, labor shortages, and her unique journey all the way from politics to becoming a leading construction sector disruptor here in British Columbia. Our conversation starts now. Hi, my name is Katie Fairley. I'm the principal and founder of Fairley Strategies. We're a consultancy firm within the construction industry, looking at helping uh, owners and industry better understand uh, each other with a focus on construction deliveries, uh, contracts, and procurement. Awesome, Katie. I really appreciate that. It's exciting to have you on. Um, and before we kind of jump into your business and, and some of the background here, I want to ask you a little bit about the construction sector um, as you're seeing it right now. Are there um, some things that you're seeing uh, within the industry in terms of challenges, some opportunities or trends? Just, uh, you know, the sector's in the news quite a bit for a variety of things related to you know affordability and labor shortage and stuff. But uh, is there anything that sticks out in particular as we jump in here? Um, I think really it just the the busyness that we've been seeing in the market. Um, it's been uh, uh, very sustained. Um, you know, it's really been you know, the, the last uh, downturn or slowdown significantly, um, you know, back 10 years ago or so. Um, so it's very, very unusual. It's a highly cyclical industry construction and to have a boom that goes on um, this long. And yes, there's been hiccups. Obviously, COVID uh, was one of them and we can touch on that. But um, yeah, it's really quite remarkable. And what stands out to me is that, you know, there's a whole generation now of, of folks in the industry from, from tradespeople up to project managers, superintendents, where this is maybe all they've known is, is this level of, of busyness. Um, and, you know, you, you touched on it as well. Um, you know, the labor shortage, it, it continues, it continues to grow as, as more and more projects, uh, come online. And that's, you know, really, I think what we're expecting to see, you know, over the coming couple quarters and into a number of years as well. So, um, you know, and I think, uh, you know, the, the biggest one that I'm getting questions, um, you know, in calls on, I would say almost daily is the impact on the, of the supply chain on construction. It's real. It's been there for a while, but it's, it's now getting to a place where people are really getting concerned about what that impact could be and how they can mitigate the risks. Awesome. Well, I look forward to jumping into that specific topic in a, in a moment here. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about construction delivery specifically on Vancouver Island. Um, are you seeing uh, any kind of specific opportunities that come along with some of the challenges that are being faced? Any risks um, within that kind of commercial and institutional side of, of the business? Um, you know, I think that uh, anecdotally, I've heard that the commercial um, side of construction, so, you know, the developers, um, you know, let's say the, the private liquor store chains, they're slowing down, that there is a, a pullback of private money within the industry, maybe not significantly, but there's just some hesitancy out there to spend money, um, despite how cheap money is right now. And I think that, you know, where firms can pivot or focus on it is that that institutional government spending, uh, you know, institutional commercial construction is really what I know best um, and what I focused on in my career. But, you know, one of the risks that we're seeing, and I, I just touched on it, is around uh, the downshifting of risk 
from an owner is what we call them, which is a, you know, a buyer of construction services, somebody looking to build and a downshifting of the risks that they naturally experience uh, as a part of building. And they're downshifting that into the contractors. So we're seeing that in, in the contract language, uh, the, the design challenges and risks that get pushed down. And, you know, that, that is a very, very poor practice and doesn't lead to a good building process, a good relationship between all the different parties. So I think now considering the busyness of the marketplace, the challenges with labor and the supply chain, it's one area that I think impacts everybody, even if maybe all of your, your listeners are potentially glazed over at this point, as I start talking about this, but it is, it is something that impacts our industry. Yeah, well, that's really interesting. And I have not heard that before. And so I'm wondering when you talk about the risk, I don't know, the the delegation of risk, do the contractors have a say in that at all? Like, is it something that their legal team can, can kind of push back to these institutions? And to me, I look at that as like, you know, educational institutes or government work. That's what, what I have think about with institutional work. But is there anything that people can do about that? Well, I think the first thing they can do is is you know these construction firms and the trade contractors as well is to just not bid, not go after these jobs. Um, you know, send a message by not pursuing it. And you know, there's an opportunity. You know, even with uh, you know the the biggest of private developers to to ask questions during any kind of negotiation period. I think once you've signed a contract, once you've signed yourself up, um, you know, you are a sophisticated company. The, the courts have made that clear. You've signed a contract and, and this is what the contract says. So, you know, the best thing to do is ask all of those questions before you, you start, uh, start a contract. And, and that's easier said than done, certainly, because, you know, the, these firms, you know, a lot of them are small. It doesn't even, I was going to say a lot of them are small, but it doesn't really matter what their size is. You know, they're excited to get to work, to keep their business running, to keep their, their folks employed. And so sometimes, you know, reading that, that construction language uh, is just not something that's, that's top of mind. And, and then it becomes too late, really, you know, by the time, you know, you've, you've signed up and you're into construction. That's kind of scary. Actually, when, uh, when yeah, <laughs> um, okay, well, I appreciate you flushing that out a little bit. I want to jump into the supply chain delays um, and the labor shortages a little bit. You know, we hear supply chain in everything from auto to, you know, shelving groceries or stocking grocery stores. What approaches are you seeing your clients taking or are you recommending them take? And is there any kind of outside the box um, approaches that, that you've seen or would recommend? Um, I think probably the biggest item is an um, open and honest communication, you know, contacting, um, you know, if you're an owner, contacting your general contractor, the contractor um, communicating with the trades um, and down onto the, you know, the, the subcontractors, subcontractors and the suppliers. So, you know, I think that it, it's it's not just one person's problem. It's not something that you can just push down to, you know, the the supplier of the light fixtures. Um, this needs to be a conversation amongst every party within construction of, you know, uh, what are we seeing? Tell us up ahead of time so that we can mitigate its impact on the schedule and maybe find a different supplier, source a different product and that sort of thing. And, you know, uh, telling people to leverage their relationships and have conversations is easier said than done, not just in construction, but in business in general. But I think that's what is what's going to truly help those external pressures. Um, and to bring it back to contract language, 
that's something that, you know, I've been asked a number of times over the last couple of weeks, which is, you know, what can we put in our contracts? One from an owner, another one from a trade, another one from a GC. So it's, you know, there's, there's no, there's no clause that can mitigate these risks. I mean, I think ultimately it comes down to kind of this open, honest communication that maybe not be outside of the box thinking, but I think that that's probably the best way to mitigate and manage these. And maybe communication, maybe that is out of the box thinking within construction and in business. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you you sharing that. I, what it reminded me of, I was talking to an electrical contractor earlier this week and they are ordering, like they're really difficult to get parts for some of the, I guess the things that would protect the electrical components almost a year out and then billing the building owner to store it on their site. So the building owner's not stoked. They're like, hey, if you don't do this now, you're not going to get it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's going to delay your project. It's going to cost you more money. And, and it's, you know, Hey, you know, Mr. Or Ms. Owner, this is the cost of building. You know, this is not a risk you can push down. I mean, I think another item is, um, you know, that we're seeing is asking trades and suppliers to hold their prices for 60, 90, however many days. That's not possible right now. If you can have somebody hold a price for 30 days, which is what's been standard in the industry for years, that's fantastic. You know, otherwise, you know, good luck in a couple of weeks. And I think, again, that's where, you know, the conversations have to have to come in, um, you know, and, and again, like kind of maintaining communication and, and talking about how together, yeah, we can, you know, a, a team can mitigate any challenges. And then would this, would it be similar uh, response on the labor shortage side? Is it about communication is are there opportunities that you're seeing bringing labor from other parts of the province in or is it just the same thing like hey everyone's struggling let's talk this through let's be you know aware that time frames are going to need to be a little bit more fluid than we're used to i don't think so i think the labor shortage is a whole different ball of wax that's a lot harder to solve until we can start cloning people, I don't know, or, um, you know, we can talk a little bit about, you know, what great disru- disruption might be out there for construction. But yeah, there is no silver bullet on this one. And I think you're not seeing, um, obviously, the the movement of people that, that maybe you would pre-COVID, you know, it's not possible to bring in crews from another country right now, um, at least not easily that I'm aware of, you know, even moving with within the provinces is, is challenging. You know, I will say, I think one of the the best things uh, that happened that was unique to BC compared to other parts of Canada was the fact that uh, construction was deemed essential early on in the in the pandemic, and um, and we also saw the industry really pivot quickly to, to to maintain safety protocols. But I mean, back back to labor. I think um, you know what we're seeing from industry is a longer term plan or foresight to go. How can we change the way? schools talk about uh, a job in the trades you know what what kind of conversations and attitudes can we change with parents so that they can they don't see uh, the trades as oh you know it's a blue collar job you know da 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 um you know we should go to university but instead see it as the rewarding high paying career that that it can be so yeah i don't think that there's any any easy answer uh, about the labor challenges that that people are facing and i was on a call just today where someone was talking about poaching people from from jobs you know and and all of that's just you know maybe they're raising wages but that in turn raises the cost of of building 
and, and construction. So, yeah, I wish I had something like, oh, this is, this is what everyone's doing and they're solving it. Um, yeah, there is, I think the only way is kind of probably through technology, but also just long-term changing the attitudes around construction, a job in construction, but also just how construction operates for, for different groups. I think the education part is such a critical aspect to it. And the people that I know in my life who went into the trades have outperformed at least monetarily most of the people who got, and there's nothing wrong with, you know, a social science degree or whatever it is, but it's not even close (laughs) on the compensation side. Absolutely. And you'll be making that money, um, you know, years earlier than, than the folks who went to get that social sciences degree. And, and I'm somebody with an international relations poli sci degree. So I can say that uh, with a lot of honesty as well. So, and I, I think that, you know, there's other aspects to it, which is, um, you know, definitely uh, more funding for, for spaces in the, the trade colleges. I think that's something that, that industry has been asking for, um, for years. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, we see that come through from the provincial and, and federal government. But I think the other part of it as well is, um, you know, construction's not for everybody, but sometimes, you know, the attitude that exists within within construction isn't amenable, let's say, to, to everybody. And I think that there is um, an opportunity for construction to look at um, how it operates and maybe how it's not welcoming to, you know, underrepresented groups, including 50% of the population being women, um, and seeing how it can change as well. So, yeah, there's a lot of different aspects to this, but uh, no easy solutions, I think. Yeah, well, you've opened up some big boxes there, but I, yeah, I yeah, do. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 it is great insight, and I appreciate it. I want to ask you a little bit about your business as well. We talked kind of in the preamble, used to work with a major commercial contractor uh, in the province. I'm wondering how you kind of came to the decision when you started thinking about stepping out on your own uh, with, with the business you have now. You know, anybody who's talked to me for any great length of time about the industry, contracts and procurement, you know, as well as the delivery method, I really found it so critical to a project and to the success of a project in a way that I became very aware of and very passionate about and felt that the best way for me to kind of go out and talk to people about that and trying to move the dial on how projects are delivered was to to go off and dedicate myself kind of full time to maybe evangelizing would be the right word, um, this topic. So uh, it was a it was an easy decision to make. It really came from a place of passion frequently talk uh, within the industry of, you know, it's uh, how we deliver projects is broken. And um, I think the best way to do that is around those three areas. On your site, I was going through this in the prep for this, and there's some ambiguous wording for me, like the layperson, right? So defining strategies, best practices and risk mitigation. Are you able to flush that out a little bit about maybe how that is practically applied to someone looking to to hire you for an institutional project or to improve their business? Um, yeah, that's, I mean, it's a great question of, of you know, maybe I made it vague on purpose yeah. now that I, now that you've quoted it back to me. No, I mean, I think that all three of those are areas that, a, that an owner, a buyer of construction services entirely controls on their own, right? I mean, they can hire a lawyer, they can draft the contract. Like I said earlier, if someone doesn't like it, you know, they don't have to sign it, but they can they can really dictate those terms, at least initially, kind of the first pass at any negotiation. Same thing with procurement. I mean, I think 
to really, um, I don't want to say dumb it down for the listeners, but, you know, procurement is purchasing, um, you know, you're, you're buying the services that you need to complete your project and, um, you know, delivery, delivery models or delivery methods. Now that gets a little esoteric into what we see in construction, but it's really, you know, it's what are the means and methods in order to get that project done? It defines kind of the risk characteristics of the project. And, and so I think all too often what I've found, you know, from my time, time in industry is that an owner wants to have this great relationship of collaboration and trust and respect. However, the very first decisions that they make within procurement and the contracts that they choose and so on sets them up for failure, sets them up for an adversary, adversarial relationship. So part of you know what I uh, what I do is I I help those buyers of construction services, those uh, institutional clients, uh, commercial clients, developers, strata councils, and kind of understand the choices that they're making and help them make those choices in a way that's really deliberate, um, with an eye to managing their risk, but to understand what they're doing so that they feel confident in the company that they're going to hire. Um, you know, likely a general contractor or construction manager, you know, that they can feel confident with that decision and and know that it's defensible as well. Okay. No, that's, that is great. That does give some more clarity. The kind of clients that you're working with institutional, are you working with, would you go to like a buying department of a post-secondary institution or a school district or law enforcement or something like that? Are the, that's the kind of You'd be the middle person between those organizations and the the general contractor they choose. Yeah, exactly. Actually, that's that's exactly the type of folks that I that I help, and I think I am almost I would say like a translator. Um, I think is maybe you know is helping that post secondary that school district that you listed off, helping them translate the information that they're going to get back from that that contractor. And then also helping to explain to the contractor through the procurement process, this is what the owner is looking for. So it's, um, you know, having worked on the side of industry and now on the side of, of owners, you know, I can see where the miscommunication starts from. And so it's, yeah, like I said, it's kind of being that translator between all the people. But yeah, exactly. The folks, uh, those types of groups that you listed off are exactly the people that I help in addition to uh, the private sector. Okay. Awesome. Um, and then I don't know what you can or can't say with your, your, with your clients, but are there any kind of specific projects or solutions that you'd kind of like to highlight or that stick out to you as you've been on your own, I think just over two years now? Yeah, I just had uh, quite recently, I worked with a strata council and I went into it kind of wondering what I was signing myself up for, to be honest, but it was, it was uh, really satisfying because they wanted to move pro, uh, forward on this project. They wanted to do it quickly. And, and what we were able to do is uh, be able to give them the confidence in the process that they were selecting the right team. And that was great at the, the fees that they received back from uh, the contractors were you know, within 1% of, of each other, like just bang in there. So we had defined it really well. Uh, you know, we'd asked the right questions of, of that team and, and we told, um, you know, the contractors what the owner was looking for. So it was, I just, I, I had a lot of satisfaction coming out of that. And yeah, I mean, that that's one that always stands out to me. And I think, um, you know, the, the flip side of what I do is, yes, I, I try to get in early, but all too often, um, I also come in almost too late. So, a con, uh, you know, an owner, a buyer of construction services, they've gone off on their own. They've 
thought they were asking the right questions, you know, and they they get the fee proposals back and the other the other technical submission back and they're just completely out of whack. You know, I had one where one of the fees was fifty thousand dollars. The other one, the the high end of it was one point two million. So, you know, that is an insane spread. Um, and so it was, you know, it was working with them and saying, okay, well, what questions are we going to ask now to kind of you know, better understand what happened? But yeah, I mean, and those are the kind of, you know, again, like wanting to help people make con- have confidence when they make their, their decisions. I think that's a, the prime example to have that sort of spread, you know, 50,000 to 1.2 million is really extraordinary. But I think at the end, they were able to move forward uh, with, you know, again, a lot of confidence. I want to ask you a little bit about your personal background. I did a little checking on your LinkedIn beforehand. You mentioned the poli-sci degree. Can you kind of walk me through how you got into the construction sector in the first place? Because I think I saw you worked in the legislature briefly. How did that transition come about? I really think simply put, I needed a job. Like you said, I worked in the legislature. I worked as a political aide. It just wasn't for me. It just, you know, I kind of knew that maybe a little bit early on and, and felt, okay, I needed to make a change. And, you know, a, a job was posted to be, I think, executive assistant, executive coordinator or something. And, yeah, I applied for it. And um, I guess, you know, the rest is history. But I think with, with construction, it really felt like a fit. You know, it felt like a fit for my personality and my approach to things. And I, you know, kind of found these kindred spirits who communicated in a similar way to me. So it was a really natural fit. But, yeah, strictly speaking, I just needed a job. So, <laughs> Yeah. And that works. That's awesome. <laughs> um, is there a, an achievement that sticks out to you uh, that you're particularly proud of prior to starting your own business? You know, I think being, uh, you know, being a, a vice president of a construction company when I was, uh, I think it was 33 or 34, you know, that's something that really kind of stands out to me and that I'm, I'm really quite proud of you know, of that. And I think that speaks to also the support um, that I had from my my business partners at the time. But I'll say the, you know, the quiet part of what I actually think is my biggest achievement, at least in my career, was um, when I worked at the Bay, it was like, you know, I worked there for five years through high school and university, and I got a 100% secret shopper award. Um, and I was working in men's shoes. And that's literally unheard of uh, for somebody to be able to score 100% when um, a secret shopper, mystery shopper comes in. And um, I've been told to take that off my resume by by friends and family. But as, as far as I'm concerned, I'm immensely proud of, of providing, you know, high customer service. That's incredible. I have never heard that kind of response before. That is phenomenal. Um, so you're, you're roughly at the two-year mark with your own business. Was there a challenge? I want to contrast the challenges when you started versus the challenges you have now. Because um, I think, and you touched on it briefly, that there's some fear in stepping out on your own, um, maybe uncertainty about, you know, are my relationships going to convert to revenue, essentially? Um, can you speak to that? Kind of like where you, the fears and challenges from, from point A to kind of where you are now as your company's matured? Yeah, I think I think really easily the, the greatest challenge was, you know, I had people tell me, you know, in the industry that I really, really respect, say people need this solution, but they're not going to pay for it. And I, you know, I heard that more than a couple of times. Um, and I still hear it today, although, it, you know, I'm you know, things have gone really well. Um, but that, that was something where it was like, you know, it was, okay, well, I believe that this is something that I can make work. 
And yeah, and the, the naysayers thankfully are wrong. But yeah, I think now the greatest challenge is just maybe, I don't want to say being too busy, but, you know, working towards finding that balance, so, you know, stepping off the the conveyor belt of life and making sure that, you know, the path that I'm headed on is is still one that I'm, um, you know, want to be on. How has your approach to management and leading people evolved since you started to kind of where you're at now, even though I guess the, the context of that leadership be a little, be a little bit different now? Yeah, I think, I think even in my dealings, you know, with peers and, and coworkers was that I would, you know, treat people the way I wanted to be treated. You know, I would, I would communicate to people the way that, that, you know, the way I just naturally communicate and, you know, in the way I want to be communicated to. And I, I then learned that there's, you know, the platinum rule, which is, you know, treat others the way they want to be treated, uh, meet them when, where they're at. You know, I am, I'm not somebody who uses exclamation points and emails, who uses smiley faces, who's going to chit chat about the weekend. But I realized that um, that's what I had to do. Um, and what I, what I, you know, eventually kind of learned to want to do in order to, you know, manage people, be a great peer, be a great coworker. And then, you know, of course, certainly with clients and, and, you know, business colleagues. So that, that was my big aha moment was was changing that communication method to meet people where they are and how they want to be treated. Yeah. I think that's really powerful because I do even myself, like I struggle with that. I do think that like the golden rule, like, yeah, treat people the way you want to be treated, but I'm a type <laughs> and I don't really yeah. want to be talked to too much. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, keep yeah. it concise. Um, so that's really cool. I do, I appreciate that. I just wrote that down. Uh, so yeah. And finishing up here, do you have a favorite book or podcast uh, that you're a regular listener of? Well, I am a big consumer of podcasts, so I'll just throw out um, uh, throw out two. So one of them is uh, Pivot from Vox Media and the New York Times. Um, it's with Kara Swisher, who's a, a technology reporter, a real kind of leader in that field, and then Scott Galloway, who's probably uh, my favorite thought leader in business in general. I, he always has some hot takes and, um, you know, I don't always agree with him, but it's, it's, yeah, he's an interesting character. And then, um, you know, almost every other podcast I listen to has a history bent to it. Um, so my favorite one though is, is the Explorers podcast with Matt Breen. Um, I can't say enough good things about the Explorers podcast, just entertaining. Best personal advice you've received. Yeah, I think the best personal advice that I've ever received, um, I'm, I'm assuming somebody once told me it, but um, it's you never know until you ask. I think that has been uh, maybe my my guiding light and contributed the most to any success I've I've had. You never know until you ask. Worst thing that can happen is somebody will say no. Ask to be in the room. Ask to be at the table. You know, ask for more money than than you think you deserve. Yeah app or piece of software that you cannot live without? Google Keep. Awesome. And favorite restaurant on Vancouver Island? It has to be Zambri's in Victoria at Yates Blanchard. Their spaghetti, um, aliolio, uh, whatever is, yeah, to die for. Thanks for stopping by From the Trenches, the Business Examiner podcast. If you want to learn more about the interviewee, please check the web and social links provided in the video or listening platform description. Please send any feedback to info at businessexaminer.ca with the subject line podcast. We'll see you next week.